When you enrich the lives of your employees through purpose-powered leadership, they'll grow your business for you. Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where you'll discover how to champion a culture of courage and love. Stop dealing with symptoms and get to the root of the problems in your business. This is the Higher Purpose Podcast with your host, Kevin Monroe. Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Seriously, I don't take it for granted that you have chosen to join our community of purpose-pursuing leaders and I'm honored that you invite me into your life. We're in a series of conversations with leaders of what I consider purpose-powered businesses. These are organizations that are in business on purpose, and they're tapping into the power of purpose. In today's conversation, we're joined by Ari Weinschweig of Zingerman's Delicatessen and Zingerman's Community of Businesses. You are in for a treat. If we were sitting down with Ari face-to-face at Zingerman's, it would be an even greater treat, as Zingerman's is famous around the world for its amazing food, treats, hospitality, and service. Ari is regarded as a pioneer of purpose-driven business. Zingerman's is actually the company that inspired Bo Burlingham to write a book 10 years ago that launched a movement by the same name, Small Giants. So listen in as we sit down to chat with Ari. Hey, Ari, thanks so much for joining us today. You know, some people realize you're quite an accomplished fellow, but what's something you'd like those listening to know about you that just allows them to connect with you as the real Ari? Well, hopefully it's all the real Ari. That's true. <laughs> there's, there's only me, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's, I, I think really when you do good work in your life, then your work is part of you. It's not all of you. And it doesn't mean everything I do is at work, but, you know, hopefully mine and in, in our case, Paul's also, but our personalities are manifested really in, you know, if you eat one of our candy bars or you have barbecue at the roadhouse or you have a sandwich at the deli or whatever it comes through that if people read the books that you know my voice comes through that um so yeah just we're all just trying to do the best we can all right at this point in life how do you describe your personal purpose well i I think just you know trying to make a positive difference i mean you know uh I'm not trying to change the world. I'm I'm much more focused on one person at a time and, you know, create a positive life for the people that I interact with as much as I can contribute. I mean, ultimately it's up to them to do what they want to do, but, uh, you know, if I can make some small difference, then that's a great thing. Yes, it is. So what's your favorite way of introducing your company in what you do? Well, my favorite way is we have a little film that's called What is Zingerman's uh, by Joe York. And uh, he works with Southern Foodways Alliance down in Oxford, Mississippi at Ole Miss. And we really like their work. We do Camp Bacon every year here as a fundraiser for them. But uh, I actually had him make the film because it's so difficult to explain to people what we do. And uh, one morning I was uh, sitting with uh, a, a writer from Boston and I met him out where I am. Like right now I'm in Zing Train, which is our training business. And I was across the street at our coffee company. And he, I had him meet me out there. And he's like, God, I didn't know you guys had all this stuff. I only knew about the deli. And 
I was like, yeah. He goes, well, how do you explain what you guys do? You know, and it was like eight in the morning and I was, you know, <laughs> like, oh God. And, uh, and Lofgren from Zing Train was walking past our table and I was like, hey, Ann, how do you explain what Zingerman's is? <laughs> so she gives her answer and then another woman, Val Neff Rasmussen from Mail Order happened to be in there and she's walking by. I'm like, Val, you know, how do you explain Zingerman's? And then I got a third one and I got a fourth one because they were all just passing by. And, and then I realized, you know, everybody sort of has a different take. They're all compatible, but they all have a different take. And so the film actually is just Joe walking around with his handheld video camera, which he's still adept at using and just walking up to employees here and just saying, what is Zingerman's anyway? And that's the title of the film. And it's got about, I don't know, 15, 25 people answering and they're each in their own way without any script, any prep or anything. Uh, you know, a more uh, historically uh, or chronologically laid out story would be uh, I came to Ann Arbor from Chicago, where I grew up in Chicago. I came here to go to school. I studied Russian history, a uh, particular focus on the anarchists. Uh, we have the largest anarchist collection in the country is on the seventh and eighth floor of the grad library. And uh, after graduating, I had, as you know, visioning is a big piece of our uh, approach here, but I had no vision. Uh, I just knew I didn't want to go home and in order to not go home, I needed a job. And so I decided I would stay in Ann Arbor. Not, I mean, now I actually really love the town at the time. It was more like it was fine and I didn't know where else to go. Uh, so I, one of my roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant in downtown Ann Arbor. And of course the whole town's only a hundred thousand people. So you're downtown to the edge of town's like 15 minutes. But, uh, so I went in there looking for a serving job. They told me they'd call me if some opened. They didn't call me. I went back after a few weeks and reapplied as a busser. And they said they'd call me and they still hadn't called me after another two weeks and I was totally running out of money. So I went back and I said, look, I got to really got to work. Do you have anything? And they said, do you want to wash dishes? And I just said, sure. And that's how I started. So <laughs> there's, there's no, you know, like entrepreneur magazine, you know, you studied, I loved food from the time I was five. I mean, none of that's true. Uh, no one in my family was in business. Uh, so, you know, I, I really didn't even know you could go into business. It was really not, uh, something that I, I even considered as an option. I just needed a job. I was supposed to go back to school and get more degrees, but I never, never did that. Uh, but in the context of your, your podcast, I guess I would say, uh, you know, I, I, at that time I had very negative beliefs about business. So business, you know, nobody in my family was in business, business in that era was, you know, it seemed like you're job choices were put a suit on and work in an office, which sounded terrible, you know, or work on a factory floor, which, you know, neither is like evil, but they just didn't sound that inspiring to me. And, uh, and, you know, seemed like business mostly did bad things to people and wasn't, wasn't real interesting. So I really just got lucky that I stumbled into work that I really love. Uh, I started prepping and line cooking. Uh, Frank Carollo, who's one of the partners in our bakery, was a line cook. Uh, Maggie Bayless from Zing Train. Our training business was a cocktail waitress. And then Paul Saginaw, who you know of, who's been my partner in all this from the get-go, was the general manager. So, so A, we've all known each other now close to 40 years, and we still like each other. Uh, B, uh, Paul pretty quickly changed my negative beliefs about business mm. because his grandfather had had a business in Detroit, and he had taught Paul what Paul, in essence, uh, taught me. And and basically the message was business isn't good or bad. <laughs> it's just a tool. And, and the issue is what you do with it. And I think that's, you know, gave both gave me and then everybody else that works here over the years, you know, this understanding that it's, you know, it's a tool we can put to work to make a positive difference or, 
you know, you could use it like a lot of people in the world do to extract as much as you can. Anyway, I stayed and worked for that restaurant group for about four years, prep, line cook, managing kitchens. And I left there in the fall of 81. Uh, in the context of your your work, I would say, you know, I it's not like I hated working there and it's not like they were bad people, but it's just I could sense where they were going and where we where I wanted to go were not the same place. So I, and I, it wasn't miserable or anything. It just was less and less inspirational to be there. And, well, I mean, there's some jobs where it's really painful to go. This wasn't at all like that. I mean, they were perfectly fine people and, you know, it wasn't a bad business, but it just wasn't where I wanted to go. So I gave two months notice. I didn't know what was going to be next. Uh, Paul had left a couple of years before that and opened a little fish market in Ann Arbor called Monahan Seafood Market, which is still one of the best in the country. And uh, he and I had been friends all those years. And so he happened to call me not knowing I'd given notice. He called me like two days later and he said, there's this little uh, building coming open near the fish market. Let's go check it out. And in Detroit, where he grew up, you could get good deli food in Chicago, where I grew up, you could get it, but you couldn't get it here. And so like within a week, we decided we were going to open and within four and a half months, we opened. So I have no idea how it went that quick because today it takes about that long to get a meeting set up. But uh, somehow we we opened the doors. So we started in uh, March 15th, 82 was our first day. Uh, And we had two employees in us and 1,300 square feet, you know, 29 seats, 20 or 29, uh, yeah, 29 seats, 25 sandwiches, you know, a little bit of bread from other bakeries. We didn't have our own then. And. Uh, some smoked fish, some salami, all that kind of stuff. And how do I describe what we do? Fast forward 36 years, we have 700 employees. I think we have 10 businesses. Each is different. We don't replicate things. So uh, we have the deli, a bakery, coffee company, candy manufacturing. We have a uh, farm uh, about 15 minutes from here that we renovated the 1830s barn and farmhouse to do weddings and corporate events. Uh, We have a mail order business. We have uh, Miss Kim is our newest business, which is our Korean restaurant. Uh, the deli, of course, is still the centerpiece. And then uh, Zing Train is our training business. And so we teach our approaches to leadership and visioning, customer service, all that to folks from all over the world. And we've got about 700 employees, like I said, and we'll do about 60, a little less than 65 million in sales this year. So, Wow. Well, fabulous story. I, I love it. Uh, are we able to get the link to that video and put in the show notes so people could watch? You it? are. You are. If you just Google Joe York, what is Zingerman's anyway? I'm sure it'll come up for you. Okay. Well, we'll include that in the show notes. If you're listening Great. and want to watch that, you'll find a link in the show notes to the video and you can watch that. Now, Ari, you and I had a conversation oh, a few years back. And what I re- there's several things I remember from that. But one of those was what you just mentioned a little uh, elaboration on that, that the goal was to be the best Jewish delicatessen in Ann Arbor, right? That was. Uh, no, I don't know that I would say that. I mean, because we, we just, I, I'm not really competitive. So okay. the best is really never in my mind. It's just being really great at it. And I don't really, okay, so a I great- don't really compare, but also I, I guess my scope is not just the town. It's really the world. Uh, not in a bragging way at all, but it's just, I mean, Ann Arbor is a small town, so it's, its uh, you know, like being the tallest kid in third grade isn't that <laughs> meaningful. Uh, I mean, it's an amazing town, but I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's just to be really great. And I, I'm always much more about competing with ourselves to improve than I am about measuring against somebody else. And then also, I mean, to be clear, we were selling cured ham products and bacon and ham hocks from the get-go. So 
I mean, we we were Jewish and we did a lot of Jewish stuff, but you know, okay. my my mother wasn't that happy about those parts of it. <laughs> well, what I want to ask then, so thanks for the clarification there. But was there this understanding or a desire to really uh, be a purpose-powered, purpose-driven business and do business in a radically different way? Or well, I, I think you know. It's 36 years ago. You know, I didn't think I'd live to be 30. You know, I mean, I I think that, yeah, I mean, the roots of it are all there. I mean, right. we didn't sit down and go, let's open a purpose-driven business. <laughs> it just, right. you know, and I, I, I think that many parts of our lives, you know, for everybody that becomes more imperfect, but more mindful as they grow older, is you can see the pieces of it with the benefit of history, which is all of what history majors do is you know, look back and try to figure out what was going on in a way that if you were on the ground at the time, there's no way you would really know because you right. can't, you know, even with, with the web and, and Facebook and stuff, people still don't really know what's going on. I mean, they just have a lot more information more quickly. Um, so, you know, that said, I mean, I, yeah, I think it was aligned with, you know, who we were or we wouldn't have gone that way. Yes. You know, when you have two employees, you're mostly just worried about not going out of business, about trying not to go out of business and make really great food and try to, you know, we only had two people working there, but you want it to be a good experience for them to work and, you know, just be caring, considerate, kind people. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. Well, and that's <laughs> what I really, we, as we grew, then, you, you know, we learn, you keep learning and we kept studying and we're still studying and we still got a lot more to learn, but and I, I don't know that we ever sat down and said, we want to be a purpose-driven business. Yeah. I, I think we wanted to make a difference in people's lives through the food, through, you know, being kind to them, through great service, through supporting uh, our suppliers and, and trying to make great food themselves, et cetera. Well, that's what I wanted people to hear, you know, those listening, that it wasn't like, no, that's kind of just the outcome. It was like wanting to just do good work and provide yeah. a great environment, take care of people. Yeah. Well, I think that that makes more sense. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. I, you know, I, 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 you know, there's a lot of talk these days about authenticity and how important it is. And I mean, it's totally right that it's important, but it's like, so now you have people trying to be more authentic, which is absurd. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I think if somebody starts out and they're like, I want to open a purpose driven business, it's already missed the point. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, in our, in our own imperfect, you know, ever flawed ways, if you're living a meaningful life, whether you're 16 or 66, it doesn't really matter. And then, you know, the constructs and the processes and the philosophies around a business evolve out of that intent. Right. And I think, you know, that said, we've all, you know, reached, you know, whatever midlife points or failure points or you know, problems that we created for ourselves in our lives, both personally and then organizationally. And then we learn from those. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, it's also true that, that we, you know, in, in quotes, we crash ourselves into the wall a few times. Then we realize that we, you know, I don't know that it was really true for us, but I think there's a lot of people that, you know, have been trained by society to pursue, you know, money and things and, and prestige and, fancy offices and not that those are bad, but you know, I think the point of your whole podcast is they're not enough. And I don't think those were really ever the things we were pursuing. I don't even have an office. I was going to say, I want people to hear this. Where is your office located? Where, where do you, I don't have an office. Yep. So what do you do? You, 
I'm, I'm sitting with you. I'm, I'm sitting with you right now. It, I'm, uh, I just, well, it, it got a lot easier once there was laptops and cell phones, but, um, you know, I but just, sometimes you work from a booth in the deli, right? Oh yeah. 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 Just sit at the tables. I'm at zinc train right now only because it's quieter over here. Yeah. I was over at the coffee company. Uh, you know, so I just schedule meetings in the businesses and I, I prefer to be out where the customers are and where the food is. And, um, I think that I, I, it's, it's more, uh, it's more comfortable for me than being isolated in a back room. Um, and I think that it's helpful for, it's good for the customers to see us. And I think it's good for the staff to see us and it's good for us to see them. Absolutely. So Ari, at this point, how, how do you, um, define success? What does it look like for you? Well, our, you know, our visioning process basically is a way of getting clarity for each of us personally and then organizationally uh, of what we, what success means. Right. So Mm -hmm. there's no right answer. And I think that's, you know, working, which is my anarchist roots to pursue our own lives as we want them to be, not as society or our parents or whoever else wants them to be. And I, I don't mean to be inconsiderate or disrespectful because I think we could pursue our own paths while still respecting, you know, those who, have other hopes for us that are not our own hopes. But at the same time, I mean, I think when we write a vision for our own lives or for our relationships or for our organizations, then that to me, that is success is just getting close to your vision. And, uh, you know, it took me a long time to realize that, you know, not like I ever said, I want to be a perfectionist, but you get raised, I got raised in, you know, not, not, horribly so, but in a perfectionist kind of mindset. But then I, you know, it became clear to me thinking about it the last couple of years, just, uh, you know, perfection. Nature is also imperfect. And a lot of our work is around living in harmony with nature. Hence the pursuit of perfection is actually an unnatural pursuit that consequently clearly is doomed to failure. So, but, but if we get close to the vision and we're real human beings, you know, honoring the successes and the failures while we're getting there, I think that's success and everybody gets to define their own. So I'm trying to work more. I'm going to run out of years. <laughs> so people are trying to work less. It's, it's not a, a, a universal standard that we all have to adhere to. I mean, some people want to work solo. Some people want to run big organizations. Some people want to make a lot of money. Some people want to have more time off. I mean, they're all legit. It's just getting clarity with ourselves and our you know, partners at home and our partners at work, you know, what, what that success looks like in a way that we can pursue it collaboratively. Absolutely. I I just think it's important because if, if you don't come to that understanding for yourself and for your organization, you're going to be living by someone else's definition and you're always going to be frustrated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in part three of the, uh, Zingerman's guide to good leading books, the, uh, the epilogue of that book, the, that book is on managing ourselves and the epilogue of it, uh, I wrote about my friend Daphne Zeppos who passed away around the time I was finishing the book. And she, you know, I don't know what she was, probably 50. I mean, way too young. And she was uh, diagnosed with lung cancer, like, I don't know, first of April that year. And like she had, was dead by July, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, which is horrible. And anyway, so I wrote it about her because it was a way to honor her and and her memory at by that point and you know so i sort of told some of the stories of sitting you know next to her out in san francisco when i went to see her and 
anyway, you know, she lived her own life and she, you know, she's, we were talking and, you know, she said, you know, I didn't do it by the book and I didn't do a lot of, you know, I never made a lot of money. And, you know, she said, but I, I, I own my own life. Mm. And I, I, you know, when I inscribe that book for people, which I do pretty regularly, that's what I write is here's to owning our lives. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, so you and Paul co-founded the the business and still yep. co-lead the business. Yep. Uh, can you share with us some of the decisions you made regarding growth? And what I'm really yeah. looking for is how did you navigate the pressures to grow and expand? Yeah. Well, I don't think growing and expanding is necessarily bad. The key is back to the vision is to grow and expand in a way that you mindfully choose, not right. because you can. Uh, so, you know, most businesses certainly in the food business go out of business <laughs> fairly quickly and then they never get to that problem so it's it's uh in part one of the business book it's an essay i wrote called 12 natural laws of business and natural law number nine is success means you get better problems and so it's a very good problem to survive the initial startup phase and get to where you have offers to expand etc um you know, we added on to the building in 1986, just another little 700 square foot slice. Then in 91, we took over the old house next door and renovated that. So that those expansions were, I wouldn't say easy because it's always hard, but I mean, they were, we didn't have to move anywhere. We didn't have to go anywhere. It was just really making more space to do what we were already doing. And, uh, you know, I didn't know, we didn't know anything about visioning. We just, you know, the first natural law business is that said, the first natural law business is that all successful organizations and I think all successful people, and I don't mean the ones who are making the most money necessarily, but the ones who are living the life that's meaningful and, and doing something special, they all have a vision. I mean, nobody just shows up and a business popped up out of the middle of nowhere. Like somebody had to have a dream, an idea, you know, an imagination that, that showed that this business was out there. Uh, Paul and I, in hindsight, had one when we opened the deli, even though we didn't call it a vision. Uh, we knew from the beginning we wanted a unique place, mm -hmm. not something that was a replica of New York or Chicago or Detroit or whatever. We wanted a great place for people to work, great food, great service, and do it in a very down-to-earth setting. And from the beginning, I really only wanted one because I'm very drawn to unique things. Uh, and I think it makes life more interesting when you're doing something that's not copying what everybody else is doing. So... Anyway, fast forwarding, opened in 82, you know, looking 11 years down the road. It was summer of 93. Uh, Mid-morning one day, Paul sat me down on the little bench out front of the deli and with no real warning, he goes, <laughs> okay, in 10 years, what are we doing? And I'm like, what? And he's like, in 10 years, what are we doing? And I'm like, why are you asking me this? And, uh, you know, he's like, this is really important. You know, we're turning down offers from other cities because we only open in one and people are now they're opening on campus and they're taking our, some of our business. And is that crazy? What are we doing? And I'm like, I don't know, man, I got work to do. And he's like, this is our work, <laughs> you know? And he was right. I mean, it was what he was asking me in our current language was what's your vision? What's our vision? And I don't think he had one either. He just had the instinctive sense that we had fulfilled the vision that we had. Uh, I, I equate it to a midlife crisis, you know, in, in your personal life. I mean, you kind of did what you set out to do. Everybody told you it was going to be really hard. It was hard, but you made it anyway, but you're not really done and you're not going anywhere. What, what's next? And his question that day prompted a year long conversation, disagreement, argument, you know, collaboration that ended up with us uh, writing for the first time a formal vision 
uh, the way that we learned it. And we learned it through Stash Kazmierski, uh, who had learned the basic core of the process from a guy named Ron Lippett, who was at University of Michigan in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, that vision was about six pages long, and it was called Zingerman's 2009. So we actually went 15 years in the future, not 10. And uh, that vision is where we discuss the idea of creating a community of businesses uh, where we could still have only the one deli, but we could grow by opening other Zingerman's businesses and that we would do them all here in the Ann Arbor area. Because for me, it's very important to be rooted in the community in which we're doing business uh, and that each business would have a managing partner or partners in it. So there'd be somebody like us that had a real passion for what that business did and was going to be in there every day because you know, in my experience, as, as much as startups are super stressful, the real question is who's going to be there 15 years later, still pushing the envelope to improve. And uh, so anyway, that's that's really was where we designed what we have. And then fast forward into 07, uh, the, 20, the 2009 vision was almost here. Uh, so we spent about 18 months. Uh, by that point, there were 18 managing partners. So we spent about 18 months working on the next vision, which was written for the year 2020. Hmm. And uh, those are both in the back of the first business book, or I can email them to people. It's just ariatzingermans.com if they want a copy. And uh, and now we just, this year, past year, started to work on the 2030 vision, which is not done or even close to done. So it's probably another year working on that. Wow. Okay. So you, you said a lot there, Ari. I want to unpack a couple of things. You talked okay. about managing partners. So perhaps more than anyone I've encountered, you really invest in relationships and understand the power of relationships or the benefit of relation. And as I see it, it's baked into the DNA of Zingerman's. Do you agree? Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, Paul talks about it more, talks about relationships probably more overtly than I do, but I think it's, yeah. I mean, if you're going to work with anybody, then it, I wouldn't say it's all about the relationship, but if you can't find a good way to work together, it's you're in trouble. Number one, number two, you know, I've learned enough from screwing up that the the bigger issues is self-management. Yeah. Because if, you, if I can learn to manage myself, then I start to find the beauty and the wisdom and the insight in everybody, whether, you know, even if it's the person that's really difficult for me to work with, there's still things I'm going to learn from them. And there's still a good person trying to do good things, even if what they did, you know, my reaction was to be frustrated. It's as much or more my problem than it is theirs. So, you know, and, and I think that, you know, like in all relationships, I mean, well, specifically, getting, getting going, getting going is one thing, but it's another thing to keep it going. And, you know, we've all had first in your businesses. Yeah. Where did they yeah. come from? That's what the, the, the relationship come from Amazon. No, uh, <laughs> they, uh, they mostly have come from within the organization, a few from outside. Uh, you know, so we, you know, by having a written vision that says that's what we're going to do, then A, other people read it, but B, we go over it with new staff when we do the new staff orientation and stuff. And both Paul and I in our own way tell them like, I hope one of y'all at this table right now becomes a managing partner down the road. And if you got an idea, let's talk about it. And, you know, a lot of more people have ideas than become managing partners, of course. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we've, there's an essay in the, in the new book, which is part four on spirit of generosity. And, uh, really, you know, it works. I mean, and what I wrote in there is uh, about Peter Kropotkin, the uh, uh, Russian uh, anarchist. So 1902, which is the year the Delhi building was built, uh, Kropotkin put out a book called Mutual Aid. 
and uh, was looking back on Darwin, right? And so like modern economics, I'm actually reading another book about it right now called Donut Economics. Uh, but anyway, modern economics is all based on a belief, which actually no one has any proof of. It's just the belief that they adopt as their, their foundational premise. And that's the belief people are always going to act in self-interest, right? So the whole new book is on beliefs, and there's this basically the self-fulfilling belief cycle we're all following, all of us, you, me, everybody. So if you believe that everybody's going to act in their own self-interest, it creates this dog-eat-dog, grab-for-yourself world. But Kropotkin said, Charles Darwin didn't say everybody's going to, is out for themselves. What he said is survival of the fittest. Thomas Hobbes interpreted Darwin to mean it was a war of all against all. Hmm. Potkin said Darwin was right, but Hobbes was wrong. Yes, it's survival of the fittest, but the fittest are the most collaborative. Wow. Okay. So, so when, when you have that, then what you have is generosity and getting more people as owners has actually helped them and helped us. Okay. So Zingerman's no doubt has a unique culture and some of that gets expressed in this series of books. And, and so- yeah. Introduce that there's there are now four that are coming. Yeah, there's, and yep, more coming. yep, yep, yep. Uh, there's four and more coming. Um, there's uh, the first one is building a great business, uh, which is talks about our visioning process, mission statements, guiding principles, culture, systems, etc. Uh, this part two is on leadership, so it gets into servant leadership, which is how you and I met. Yes. Uh, stewardship, uh, all the energy management. Part three I mentioned earlier is on self-management. Uh, and then the new one is on beliefs. And then it's got some stuff in there also on hope in the workplace and spirit of generosity in the workplace. Okay, so let's talk about that a little since we've gotten there. Um, you never set out to write a book on beliefs. That wasn't in the plan. No, not at all. Uh, it sounds weird because I speak and teach on leadership and everything, but I really honestly never thought much about beliefs. And when I say beliefs, I'm not talking about religion, sports, and politics, which are the three areas of belief that are commonly used every day. Those are also beliefs, but I'm staying away from those. But this is more about you know what you're talking about, beliefs about purpose, beliefs about generosity, beliefs about people, beliefs about yourself, your significant other. Like we all got millions of them and this self-fulfilling belief cycle that I referenced earlier, you know, it's all uh, happening to all of us every day. And so I, I discovered that uh, cycle in Bob and Judith Wright's book, Transformed. Uh, I've known Bob for a while. He wrote the foreword for part three of my book series. Uh, anyway, he can't remember where he learned it. So I don't know who to give the total credit to, but I learned it from him. So I give him the credit. But Anyway, it kind of blew my mind and it just made me think hard. And the more I started to think about it, the more I realized it was going on all around me, of course. And that basically, if I don't understand what, how what you believe impacts you, is creating your life, then <laughs> you're kind of clueless. So I started to study beliefs and study beliefs and study beliefs and started to look at all the implications it had for me in my personal life, at, at work, in, my orga in our organization. And out of that, came a 600 page book, not in a week, but it came a 600 page <laughs> book because it's going on all the time. And so uh, it's, it was pretty mind blowing. Okay. And, and in that there was an encounter or a couple of encounters that you just observed that really triggered the, the deeper thinking about the power of beliefs. Was it? Well, one, one story, I'm not sure which ones uh, you have in mind, but one thing that we were, we had a work group that was going on, uh, dealing with an organization-wide quality issue. 
Uh, and, you know, we did all the things that we normally do that create an effective work group. We had a diverse group of people, different uh, people from different businesses, different levels of higher, you know, the, the org chart, uh, the group wrote a vision for what they were going to do. Quality is, as you've already referenced, a huge piece of our work. So it should have worked, but it, it just wouldn't work. And then I tried sort of pushing harder. It didn't work. I tried laying back. It didn't work. I tried, you know, cajoling people. It didn't work. And I was getting really frustrated because it's really important to me that, you know, obviously the quality of the product is good. And that was in that moment or in that period is when I happened to read Bob's mm. book. And I was like, oh, my God, I get it. They don't believe in the work and they don't believe in each other. And if you don't believe in the work you're engaged in, it won't work. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we know this. I mean, as somebody who's in sales that doesn't believe in their product won't sell it. Uh, a coach who doesn't believe in the player, the player is going to fail. If the player doesn't believe in the coach, the team's going to fail. Uh, and, and so then I was like, wow, it's totally making sense. And that really pushed me to study and study and study. And here mm -hmm. we are. And you see three broad categories of beliefs? I do. Uh, negative beliefs, neutral beliefs, and positive beliefs. I started to look at beliefs as the root system of our lives because just like in nature, you can't see the roots, but everything that comes up above the surface soil line we know is 100% correlated to what's going on underneath. And, and beliefs are the same thing because all of our behaviors follow from our beliefs. If you know what the beliefs are, it's 99.8% predictive of the behavior. And, uh, but the interesting thing is then it, it was like, well, if you have negative beliefs and beliefs are the root system, it's, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that negative beliefs are going to produce negative outcomes. Neutral beliefs don't do much and positive beliefs create positive outcomes. And, you know, then I was like, oh my God, of course, if I have negative beliefs about people that we work with, if I have negative beliefs about myself, if I have negative beliefs about my girlfriend, whatever, it's, it's doomed to fail. Uh, and, and the cool thing though, is I started to understand that we can choose what we believe and that beliefs are not genetic. Uh, we think they are, but they're not because they're all learned from our parents, from our third grade friend, from your fifth grade teacher, from athletes, from, you know, musicians, actors, politicians, from the news and, and people's beliefs are being manifest. They don't even know they're manifesting them, but you know, the, the word choices that we use right, right. tell us about the beliefs. So pretty and powerful. Beliefs affect business far more than most of us imagine. It, it is business. I mean, so, so A, you know, if you have an employee and you don't believe they're very smart, the odds of them getting to greatness are close to zero. Uh, if, you, uh, if you believe people are out to get you, you're going to end up with a very constricted uh, you know, suspicion driven business. If you believe that you need to grab first for yourself, you're going to end up with the opposite of the generosity that we talked about. Uh, if you believe that, you know, you should be rich, it's probably not going to get you there <laughs> unless you're willing to do the work. Okay. So there are two words you, you used that are part of this book that I want you to elaborate on a little bit. Uh, okay. let's, which one do I want to go first? Uh, yeah. Let's, let's talk about, um, uh, hope. Okay. Because hope is um, yeah. Well, that's another <laughs> thing I never thought about. Lot of places of the world. Yes, it is, especially these days. But uh, yeah, I mean, I you know clearly I know what hope is, and clearly I have lived a hopeful life, and I uh, probably like you and a lot of people listening, we come from 
uh, backgrounds in which hope was very common. And so we, it's easy to take it for granted. And, but the truth is we're very lucky that we grew up in those settings because in hindsight, I can tell you without hope, nothing good happens. Uh, and there's a lot of people in the world that are in very hopeless settings. Um, so this, you know, the other story maybe that you're referencing is just, you know, I was walking past a manager talking to an employee and I wasn't trying to listen in. I just happened to be walking past. It's, one of the up and downsides of not having an office. And, uh, you know, the conversation was something along the lines of, you know, the employee clearly wanted to do something like teach a class. We teach a lot of internal classes and the manager's response was, well, you know, something along the lines of, well, that's not going to happen until you do this, 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 and this. And, you know, I was like, whoa, that's not great. Uh, But in reflecting on it, I mean, it's probably correct that the manager is probably correct that the employee needed to do those things. But there's a way to say it that would have encouraged them, and there's a way to say it that discourages them, and the discouraging way is essentially squashing their hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I s- started around that time to read about hope, and all of the data shows you what, in hindsight, is super obvious, which is people with low hope perform poorly. Mm. That's true in life in general, and it's true in business. So uh, people with high hope... Uh, do better in all kinds of things. So even when scores are adjusted, they perform, you know, for talent, they perform better academically, they perform better in athletics, they are more resilient around organizational change, they're more likely to engage in organizational change, they have lower turnover, you know, so I'm like, well, even if you didn't want hope before this, why would you not? And and then low hope people conversely do very poorly. Why? Because they have no hope. Uh, so I started, you know, if beliefs are the root system, I started to look at culture as the soil of the organization and hope as the sun and, and generosity as, as moisture. And without any of those things, it's not going to go very well. And, uh, and then I started to think of, okay, well, how do we actually teach hope to people? Because it's not like that manager that day said, I'm going to dash the hope of this poor employee. You know, they were just doing what they thought was right. And it wasn't their fault. It was our fault because we hadn't really trained them. Mm. Okay, so uh, let me go over that again. Um, beliefs are the roots. Yep. Culture is the soil. Yep. Hope is the sun. Yep. And generosity is the yeah, the moisture, the water. Because without any of those, your ecosystem will not thrive. Yeah. Okay, so there there's some things that you think are are kind of essential for hope, or six elements of hope, or six ways yeah, to yeah. That's grow true. Hope. What are those? Yeah. I, I, I think this, on, this is just beautiful. Thank you. I settled on a six-pointed star since hope was the sun. So uh, the first is to help people see a better future, right? So, you know, when you grow up in a, I don't know, middle-class family like I did, I mean, you know, people see a lot of hope. But if you grow up in a, in a poverty-stricken mm-hmm. inner-city setting or if you grow up right now in northern Syria, you know, it's, it's hard to have a lot of hope. But our job as leaders in the organization is to show people that there is a better future, that they're not stuck in the same job they have now or at the same pay rate. And the visioning work that we talked about earlier is a huge way to you know, show them organizationally where we're going and then give them a tool to help design the future that they want. Uh, the second thing is to, to show them that there's ways to get there, right? So if you, if you imagine a better future, but you have no clue how to get there, it's called magical thinking. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a common problem. I mean, people want to be, you know, we all wanted to be Michael Jordan when I was a kid, but it wasn't going to happen. So that that's, 
in one way it's hopeful, but it's actually destructive because there's no actual path to get there. So showing people what the path is, and in fact, better still is showing them that there's multiple paths because one of the characteristics of high hope people turns out to be that they always have two, three, four, five ideas of how to get where they want to go because they understand that inevitably one or two of them aren't going to work. So low hope people uh, have might have one path and then, you know, whatever, they don't get hired in the job they wanted and they give up. High hope people just go, well, that manager was probably having a bad day that day. I'll go back next week or I'll go to this other place or whatever. Uh, the third thing is to show them how much they matter as human beings. Um, this is not tied to their work performance. It's not tied to anything. It's just to honor them for who they are. Uh, you know, I have the very strong belief that everybody's a creative, smart, caring individual that is capable of doing great things. So in order to help them do that, I need to get to know them. And if I don't get to know them, I'm missing out, right? So mm -hmm. just honoring them for who they are. Uh, the fourth part point on the star is to uh, help them see how much their work matters. And this is your work around purpose. So like, what, what's the point? Like if all you did is make a coffee drink to get paid, it doesn't matter. But when you understand like whatever the, you know, it might be the grandparents and the, and the grandchildren coming to our coffee company and the quality of the coffee, the service, the energy we bring to it could like radically alter their whole day. And I don't know, what if something happened to one of the grandparents the next week and that was their last interaction and we put a sour spin on it, or we could put a positive spin on it. Uh, the fifth thing is to help them see that the little things make all the difference because high hope people understand that success doesn't come from lotto tickets. It doesn't come from getting lucky. It comes from doing the little things and whether that's, you know, sending extra flowers to your significant other when it's not Valentine's day, uh, you know, going out of your way to thank an employee for seeing little things you know, tasting the product, that the little things that are really what add up to the big one. And then the sixth point on the star is to show them that they're a part of something bigger than themselves, which again is back to your focus on purpose. And it, it just struck me as like, these aren't that hard. Yeah. Like we could do all six of those for every employee on our shift every day. And when you, if you were doing that as a leader, or if I'm doing it as a leader, we're going to significantly increase hope. And when we increase hope, turnover goes down. Wow. Mistakes go down. Hmm. Energy goes up. If energy is better, service is better. If service is better, sales are better. You know, so it's all this uh, sustainable ecosystem. Virtuous cycles. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And then there was another word you, I, first off, I love these six points. Uh, when I read them, I was like, I was just so energized. And, and Ari, that's one thing I love about your work, the work of Zingerman's. Uh, you all have just kind of uh, articulated simple things, but, but mm -hmm. put them in processes. And I love like your, your rule of service. Yep. Uh, the, the 10 foot, the. Yeah. 10 four rules. So that's actually another book. That's not part of this series. It's a Zingerman's guide to giving great service. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that one of my beliefs is, uh, life is complex. Yeah. One of the, one of well one of but but that said is one of one of the common rants that people go into or, is that that complexity is bad and it's overwhelming and the world is too complex and I think it just is like you you can you can't make it simpler like and and Carl Rogers a psychologist I was reading some of his stuff last, a couple of years ago and he pointed out the obvious the higher the life form the more complex it gets mm. so so when people are fighting complexity. They're, they're actually, again, fighting nature, which is doomed. Hmm. 
Hmm. What you can do instead is to honor the complexity and then come up with simple constructs that help people to manage the complexity. Yeah, simple right. constructs. Yeah. So the, the, the constructs are simple and they seem obvious once you have them. But what they do is, so a lot of places train their employees to follow scripts and work by rote. But the problem with that is you're, you're losing their creative intelligence in the process. And then, you know, 90% of the time the script might work, but 10% it's a disaster. So what we try to do is create organizational recipes. So like for, for sanitation issues, a standard operating procedure is fabulous because we're not really interested in creative interpretation of what's food safe and what's not. Right. But for customer service, it's people. And so you know, what you need today is not what you're going to need tomorrow. And you could be the same customer, but we need to be able to fit both of you, you know, on Monday and on Tuesday and give you a great experience. So uh, the 10-4 rule just is super simple. I learned it from somebody else decades ago. I can't remember where, I think in Atlanta. And, you know, it's just when you get to within 10 feet of anybody, make eye contact and smile. When you get to four feet, greet them. Now, we don't walk around with a tape measure. So if they're three foot 11, you could still greet them if they're five, you know, whatever, five or four foot one. But, you know, the point is to, to teach people what will help them succeed and help the organization succeed. And in the context of virtuous cycles and sustainable ecosystems, uh, you know, when we greet the guest and each other, the, their energy goes up, right? They're acknowledged as a human being. It's the second point on the hope star, on the third point on the hope star. It turns out, and I didn't know this till three or four years ago while I was working on the new book, but there's a number of studies that show when you, when you make meaningful eye contact with others, your own energy goes up. Hmm. So now it's this generative, it's like solar power because you're greeting them, they feel better, and you're greeting them, you feel better, and everything goes better. So Simple stuff in a way, but it doesn't demean the staff member. It doesn't say how to greet. It just says greet them. You get to put your own spin on it, your own personality, but greet them. So I've always remembered the 10-4 rule since reading it. Then I discovered the Ritz-Carlton has a similar rule. Uh -huh. And then I discovered last year, research for a project, there's actually a, a science of proxemics. Hmm that okay. matches those zones, that one is the public zone and then the social zone and then the personal zone. And I'm going to look it up. When people come out of that 12, 15 foot range into 10 foot, they are expecting to be noticed because they made a transition mm -hmm. from public space into your space. Great. When they get close, it, it's more intimate. And then we all know that private space where somebody gets too close and you feel violated when they, you know, all of a sudden get right nose to nose with you to say, Hey, how are you doing today? Whoa, back up. So all yeah. of that's okay. the science of proxemics. Sorry. I'm going to look it up. Thank so you. When I found the science of proxemics, you were the first person I thought of. I was like, well, this is the science behind what Zingerman's does. All right. So generosity, I can't get away without yeah. about generosity. So. Well, I sort of mentioned the underlying theory. I mean, it's just, with that belief, self-fulfilling belief cycle in mind, again, if you start with the belief everybody's out to grab for themselves, then the obvious action you'll take from that is to grab for yourself. <laughs> yep. Then the people around you go, well, he's grabbing his, I better get mine. And then they grab theirs. And then you go, thank God I grabbed mine first because I would have been in big trouble. <laughs> if you change that core belief and you just hold the belief that generosity actually helps us all grow, then you start by giving which is servant leadership, you start by giving, not taking, then they go, oh, 
this giving stuff is cool. I'm going to give. <laughs> and then it reinforces the original belief. So the, the essay on generosity, it's, it's not, you know, people talk about generosity and they typically think of charity and donations, which are certainly good things, but this is more spirit of generosity. So, you know, just the idea of giving people second chances. Yeah. Interpersonal uh, generosity. Absolutely. Yeah. Starting with positive beliefs instead of negative beliefs. Um, you know, honoring people for who they are, being willing to share uh, what Paul calls your, your social capital. So, uh, you know, half another day. I mean, it's just somebody that, you know, we know uh, they had a fire at a house and, you know, we know a lot more people. So, you know, there's an attorney that, uh, you know, who's quite well known. And, you know, I just asked him if he, if she could call him. And so, you know, she can't afford that attorney. But of course, people are generous. So he's like, absolutely, I'll talk to her. You know, it's not my expertise, but let me talk to her and see if I can help. You know, so being willing to go, you know, it took me five minutes. So it's not like it's this really big deal, but just being willing to do those sorts of things helps everybody. Well, Ari, you're such a generous soul. Thanks for your generosity today. Uh, two questions before we leave. One, yeah. just I know you you interact with a lot of business people that are probably earlier in the journey. So mm -hmm. as you look back on 36 plus years of this, for somebody just getting started, what, what, what's what's an encouragement you'd share with them? Well, I, I believe any of us can do kind of anything if we stick with it and if we get around good people to work with. And you know, that said, I mean, we're all going to fail. We're all failing all the time. Uh, it's, it's just trying to have more successes than failures on any given day. And, uh, you know, we've all fallen short. I think it's a lot is how we recover from the falling short, mm. um, you know, opening a business or starting a relationship. I mean, those, they're hard, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's good work. And when you choose the work, you know, which is what the vision is about and you're clear on where you're going and you believe in where you're going, which is the point of your podcast, then it's a it's a rewarding thing and and really it's not about getting to where you want to go although that's kind of the end point but it's really about finding joy and appreciation and in, in in the little things every day because that's really all there is i mean when we get close as i described earlier when we get close to the vision that we wrote we just write another one so so i'm i'm all about the vision but in the end of, in the in the end of the day it's really just you know tiny little things and you know how good the espresso was a few minutes ago when i was over at the coffee company or you know trying to be kind to people and, you know, appreciating the little stuff. Mm. Yes, sir. I, something I learned in my servant leader journey, little things matter most. Yeah. And we never know what little thing is going to matter most to whom, when. No, absolutely. So, so that's something that's in my mind. And then really the, 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 the books are meant to share a lot of, you know, my mistakes and our learning and all that. And uh, we're sort of off the grid so people can get them at zingtrain.com. Uh, which is also where uh, uh, our training seminars are because we teach all this stuff to other people from all over the world. And then uh, my email, like I said, is just ari at zingermans.com. If people have questions, you're welcome to reach out. Okay, those were the th that was the other question I had, just how do people get more? And oh, so we've already there you go. That. So Ari, thank you again for your generosity. Uh, thank you for just being the light that you are, which is just being you. I mean, it's just showing up and just being Ari on a regular basis. Well, I think that's, it's always easier said than done, but I think the more everybody can be true to themselves, uh, the better the world is going to be and the less people are dumping on each other because they're owning their own, 
you know, their own dreams, their own desires, their own shortfalls and failures. And when we do that, we can honor the other people for who they are. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Ari. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, speaking of generosity, Ari, thanks again for being generous with your time, your insights, and your experiences from 36 plus years of, of business on purpose. Hey, let me share a couple of the takeaways, the things that are just ringing in my mind and ears after talking with Ari. Uh, the first one, business is a tool. Be intentional what you do with it and be mindful about how you grow. There's not just one path. Find the path that's right for you in your business. Secondly, I love the ecosystem Ari talked about where beliefs are the roots, culture is the soil, generosity is the moisture, and hope is the sun. Well, I, my hope is that you have a vibrant ecosystem fueling you on your purpose journey. And then third, I love the six-pointed star of hope. Folks, we need more hope in the world. And I loved what Ari said, that people of low hope only see one path. People of high hope see multiple paths and, and multiple options. So I hope that you are a person of high hope and that you're encouraging others to, to be filled with hope as well. Hey, before we leave, I want to invite you, if you haven't already downloaded the Purpose Manifesto, please be sure and grab your copy. You can get it at kevindemonroe.com forward slash manifesto. That's kevindemonroe.com forward slash manifesto. And until we connect again, remember to live, love, and lead with purpose. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. And remember, you can get your free 15-minute laser coaching call by going to kevindemonroe.com slash work. He'll help you get unstuck in your business.